Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast, where we explore how to center our lives and our leadership in the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. In the midst of the disruptive cultural shockwaves of the 21st century, join us as we learn to take the love of God seriously as the force that holds all of us and everything together. Good day, listener. You're listening to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Podcast. Gravity. Yep, you got it, Matt. Keep going. You're doing great. (laughs) You're doing great. You're doing great. That's Ben's voice you're hearing, and I'm Matt. Uh, You know that by now. And we are getting a new series today, Ben, on the Bible. Yes, I'm really excited about this series. Mm -hmm. Yep. You know, I think- It's all about the Bible. I think a lot of our listeners, uh, including you and I, we listen. We have um, had a, a maturing, a growing, changing kind of relationship to the scriptures. A lot of the things that uh, categories or frames that used to work are working less well and needing uh, better ways to talk about things like inspiration, things about mm-hmm. how to read scripture uh, yeah. and what scripture is for, even. Yes. And so we have recruited some of the best people that we possibly can to talk about this with us. Yes. Yeah. Some of these people have been on the podcast before. Um, Others are new to the podcast, but I'm really excited about this series because I think my, you know, I think my relationship with the Bible has changed significantly from say 25 years ago Yeah. when, you know, I had you know, theories about what inspiration meant, you know, what it meant that, what, what does the authority of scripture mean? Yeah. Um, how interpretation of scripture works. Yeah. Um, all of that kind of thing has changed so drastically that uh, we kind of wanted to talk to some people about how it could change. Because the other thing is we've heard a lot, we've heard from a lot of our listeners mm-hmm. that they do struggle with reading the scriptures, especially as, you know, some maybe process of deconstruction has come up. Their faith is beginning to change. They're starting to look at God in a new way. And then they return to the Bible kind of after having some of these paradigm shifts and they don't know what to do with yeah. it. Yeah. 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 The paradigm like, shifts, I, the paradigm shifts are good, but then they, they try to go back to the scriptures and old paradigms keep coming online for them. Right. It's and, like, and it, yeah. Yeah. And they, they haven't, they haven't redone the how to read Bible app yes. for the new, <laughs> for the new uh, operating system. Huh? How about that, Ben? That's a pretty good metaphor. If, if you know anything about apps and operating systems. Um, my metaphors yeah, are really, uh, really great. I just the best want to celebrate mm-hmm. that. Yeah. This, yeah. this is how I, here's to you, Matt. Here's this is how metaphors. I take care. This is how I take care of myself. <laughs> I celebrate my wins. Yeah, uh, that's great. Publicly. I think it's a great metaphor. Yeah. Uh, another metaphor could be, you know, I'm having some work done. Um, actually, as we're recording this, I'm having some work done on the house um, that I'm moving out of. When this is released, it will be my first day in my new house. So mm. thanks be to God. Um, but you know, um, I think it it it's also akin to the foundation of a house where we we change the foundation. Um, through like some paradigm shifts or some deconstruction. But then when it, like we go back into the living room and we're like, well, this, this place is different now, or um, the, the foundation is completely shifted and we need to rethink how we configure the furniture in here. I don't know if that's another metaphor, but hmm. I'm going to celebrate that one for me. So. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> maybe, maybe as a way to celebrate, we can uh, introduce Chris Green. Yes. Our guest today. Well, I, I do want to say this as well. I just want to give oh. people a preview. This this series oh. is going to go for, let's see here, one, two, three, four, five, six, at least seven weeks, maybe eight or nine. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll take us all, you know, all the way into December probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got Chris Green today. He's kicking us off. He's been on the podcast before. Um, Melissa Flora Bixler joins us. Um, Karen Keen is going to be on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, Jewish Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg. Um, joins us, Zach Hunt, Scott McKnight, Miguel De La Torre, and others are joining us for this uh, series. And so um, if you're not subscribed, if somebody sent this to you, please subscribe. So you yeah. get all the all the goodness coming your way. We talk about how to read the Bible. Yep. And today we're talking Again. about sanctifying interpretation, uh, vocation, holiness, and scripture with Chris. He's, I think, helping us recover a way of reading, partic- in particular, um, some of the more 
troubling or distant Old Testament mm-hmm. texts, yes. recovering how to read them the way that the people who uh, learned how to read Scripture from Jesus read them. Yes. Yep. So a much more um, Jewish way of reading those texts and a much mm-hmm. more, uh, I think, helpful way of reading those texts. So I'm yes. excited to yes. share this interview with you. Yeah, I am too. One of the things, this is a little bit tangential, but just to get our listeners ready. Um, one of the things I deeply appreciate about every time I talk with Chris, I feel pastored. And I think, uh, listener, that you will as well. Um, Chris has a way of teaching very, very uh, deeply, very, very paradigm shifting concepts, Mm -hmm. uh, but he does so in a very gentle and pastoral way that I'm uh, deeply grateful for. So I think this is a great way to kick off this series with Chris just pastoring us into uh, helping us understand how to interpret some of these troubling scriptures. All right. Well, let's, let's broadcast this sucker. Here it goes. Chris Green joins us today on the Gravity Podcast. He's a professor of public theology at Southeastern University in Lakeland, Florida, and bishop of the Diocese of St. Anthony and director for St. Anthony Institute of Theology, Philosophy, and Liturgics. He's the author and editor of a number of books, including most recently All Things Beautiful and Aesthetic Christology, and the book we're talking about today, Sanctifying Interpretation, Vocation, Holiness, and Scripture. Chris, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Matt. Good to see you and Ben again. Yeah, yeah. it's always good. It's great. Always good to see you. And yeah, be with it's you. great to have you. Um, I mean, we're doing this series on how we read Scripture. What is the Bible, Chris? And uh, I know that you've spent a lot of your life reading the Bible, preaching the Bible, teaching the Bible. Um, but like us, you've uh, been on a journey with the yeah. Bible, right? So you grew up Pentecostal. You're now Anglican, Anglican bishop. I think that's new. So congrats, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Uh, ben grew up charismatic. And uh, now he's a Democrat. Um, how do you? <laughs> we all we all have our journeys in life. Yeah, what a journey! What a journey! Uh, I, I kid, I kid. Uh, how do you? How do you? Uh, how do you talk about your spiritual journey, Chris? And and how does Anglican? Is Anglican an inclusion of of the Pentecostal roots? Is it a is it a detour? How do you make sense of all that and where you are? Mm-hmm. Great question. Thank you for it. Well, I think. At, at the level, kind of at the level of personal health, my spirituality itself, I think, hopefully, it's a movement toward a broad place, you know, a, a much healthier place. I think what I grew up with was pretty toxic. It wasn't simply fundamentalist, which is its own kind of toxicity, but it was also a, a group of unhealthy people who were holding to unhealthy theology. And I hope that, you know, my I've had some growth from that, right? A movement toward a life that's at least occasionally marked by the fruit of the spirit <laughs> and, and at least somewhat uh, humane. So that, that is, that to me happens to be, has almost nothing to do with the theology itself, right? It, it was, I think you can find toxic people in every tradition and in every religious tradition. And I, I just happened to be born there. I think theologically I see what's happened to me over the last 10 or 15 years as a deepening of what I was given, a, a recovering of what had been effaced in my own tradition. So the Pentecostalism I grew up with was a kind of watered down, pared down version of Wesleyan Anglicanism. It, hmm. I mean, it was, it was Wesleyan revivalism kind of stripped down to the barest bones. Yeah. And yeah. what I'm, what I've done theologically, liturgically, is a kind of recovery of that larger, deeper, older tradition. So I, I would say, depending on which the conversation is, in terms of my own personal growth, I think I'm hopefully moving toward healing and wholeness. Yeah. Theologically, I'm moving back into the roots of my own tradition that most of the people in the churches I grew up with had forgotten. They'd forgotten their own past in that way. Yeah. Yeah, that's really sweet. I think that's what attracted Ben and I to the tradition as well, this uh, ability to not have to choose between being contemplative or charismatic. Yeah, right? Right. We, we can claim it all. Um, Absolutely. And, yeah. And, then, and I think, and think in some ways it 
it claims us, right? So I, I'm a part of the communion of evangelical Episcopal churches, which belongs to what historians have labeled the convergence movement. But I, I don't like that language because convergence suggests that there are these various ways of being Christian that we just kind of decide to try to hold together, you know, yeah. liturgical, sacramental, evangelical, biblical, and charismatic. And I, I mean, I think those are arbitrary distinctions that what actually happened is part of the legacy of the Reformation, especially in America, is the kind of disintegration of things that should have always yes. held together mm. and and did hold together traditionally. So I, I speak about what, what's happening in our diocese as a reconvergence of things that should never have diverged, right? Like these things should never have come apart. Yeah. The contemplative, the charismatic, the, the scriptural, like all of those things belong to each other. And, yeah. and not only can they hold together, they belong together. And when they get pulled apart, they become diseased. Like mm. the liturgical without the contemplative is diseased just as surely as the charismatic without the contemplative is diseased and so yeah. on down the line. Yeah. So the picture I'm getting as you're talking, Chris, is more, it's less of an amalgamation of various like pieces that we've decided to pull together into a mosaic, but, and more of a reintegration of fragments that were, were never meant to be Absolutely. sort of picked up and looked at on their own. Absolutely right. I mean, that's, yeah. that's at least, what I'm aspiring to, what I feel called yeah. toward, right? Yeah. I mean, it's easier said than done because of expectations and old habits and, yeah. you know, the way that issues get framed for us, it's hard to break free of that framing sometimes. Yeah. But yes, I absolutely believe that they belong together, right? That, yeah. that these various hmm. ways of being Christian are in fact one way, right? Yeah. That, are, that it should be incredibly dynamic. So, yeah, yeah I mean, and, and that, of course, Matt, to your question originally, I mean, how I read the Bible has changed fundamentally at yes. both of those levels, both because of my kind of personal growth movement toward yeah. health and because of my theological deepening. Well, let's talk a bit about that, Chris. I wonder if you could, you know, you grew up Pentecostal. I wonder if you could tell us about, you know, where, where did you start? What were the messages about scripture that you received in the church that you grew up in? Like what was scripture and how did you read it? How did you use it? Yeah. Scripture was the King James version. Okay. It was, you know, we we had some sense that there were other languages, you know, Greek and Hebrew and all that, but but no regard for it. In fact, when I was sixteen or seventeen, I preached a service in which I made reference to I'd found my grandfather's uh, Strong's Concordance, and preached. I won't I won't even get into the sermon itself, although I remember it. I remember what I did, um, and I got called down from the pulpit for it. Um, as unnecessary, like you don't need to appeal to those things. So it was, it was staunchly King James only. And ironically, there was a, there was a strong emphasis on quoting the Bible, on memorizing huge texts of scripture, on reading the Bible. But there was, there was no sense of really paying attention to what the words mean. There, there was, if you can put it like this, there was, there was no interpretation. There was no exegesis. There was no concern for mm. making sense of what the text says. It was almost talismanic. And in right. fact, when I was, when I was very young, I have this memory at being, you know, six or seven years old, maybe eight. And the preacher is preaching about hell. Of course. I mean, almost every sermon was about hell. And if it wasn't, it eventually became a sermon about hell. And he called me to come up and took to take his Bible and place it at the back door of the church and he said, you know, if any of you leave tonight without coming forward to repent, you're you're crossing the bloodline. So the Bible had this quasi-magical status, right? Yes. And, and there were rules, like even in our in our home as well as our church, you couldn't put anything on the Bible. Like you couldn't put a songbook or you know a glass of water or whatever else on on the Bible. So there was a it was bibliocentric, I think, even bibliolatrists, right? Yeah. But, but almost no regard at all for the meaning of scripture. Interesting. Ironically. Yeah. Huh. So it functioned kind of as a religious talisman. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah. And yeah. it was, uh, it, so you could, you know, invoke phrases from scripture in, in a quasi magical way. Yeah. I mean, it was, that's, that's mm -hmm. exactly, there was a kind of sympathetic magic to, to the Bible. 
And, you know, there's a, there's a way in which one of the things that I cherish about that is that it was, it was a kind of overgrown mysticism that had kind of lost touch with other things that needed for its own health. Like that, there's a, there's a kind of Catholic sensibility, almost medieval sensibility to it. Right. Right. Like the Bible was a relic (laughs) that was going to do for us what the, the wood of the true cross did in the ancient world. You know, it's that, that kind of um, dynamic. And and I, I don't despise all of that. I think it got lost. And when it got separated from other things it needed, yeah, it became yeah. these, but in and of itself, I, I, there are aspects of that that I find meaningful. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Almost, it's almost like uh, in rejecting sacramental theology, they created a sacramental yeah. object. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, because I think I think Pentecostal spirituality, as I said before, I mean it's it's really Wesleyan sacramentality worked through revivalism, right? Yeah. And and so that that logic remains, even if we've forgotten what it is, even if we're out of touch with what our own tradition means, it's still there. It's still working on us and showing up. It's it's kind of, you know, weeds growing through the cracks of the sidewalk, right? I mean, there's just no way to completely eradicate that. And so, yes, I think that's, I think it's right. It shows up elsewhere. So at some point, this understanding the KJV only and treating the, the Bible as sort of a some sort of relic, um, at some point it stopped working for you or you began to see maybe some insufficiencies. Can you narrate that a bit? How, what, what were there, uh, seminal moments or catalysts that provoked you to reevaluate that? Yeah, it was actually reading literature. So I I remember where I was sitting. Um, I'd never read Moby Dick, but I had a professor who was introducing us to American literature and he started by reading passages from Moby Dick and talking about them. And I almost immediately, like my mind came alive. It's like I, my mind had been asleep my entire life. I'm, I'm cool. 17 when this happened. And you know, I was a smart enough kid and I could memorize anything, but I'd never really thought about anything. You know, I'd, I'd never been allowed or shown how to think. And just hearing him talk about that text, it's like my mind was on fire instantly. And from that point, picking up the Bible was a different thing. Like it was like at that point I began to see how alive the text really, really is. Yeah. Yeah. I, you have this phrase in your book about, um, you, you talk about the conceptual framework of foundationalist epistemologies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, I think you're pushing uh, off of that into a different direction for those of us who aren't trained in philosophy, et cetera, could you just give us uh, a layman's or laywoman's sort of understanding of what is a foundationalist epistemology and why ultimately was it uh, insufficient to help you appropriate scripture as a Christian? Mm -hmm. Well, let me answer the back half of that question first. I, I think it's insufficient for everybody, whether they know it or not, especially the people that think it works for them. Like there's nothing more dangerous than a foundationalist who's sure that the foundation foundationalism works. I mean, those people are almost invariably, they're terrible people, like and they're certainly hard people to work with. Right. Not, not, I'm not trying to be David Bentley hard here. And you know, like this, but it's careful. He's, he's, he's really come under fire recently. You don't, I don't know if we want any of that I do shade. Not want any of that fire. Throw that shade at him. Yeah. I'm just, it is it is a disastrously bad idea. Mm. And people who are drawn to the idea and fall in love with the idea are betraying something about themselves. Now, there are lots and lots of people who hold that idea and aren't terrible people, but they're not mm. in love with the idea. Right. They're not championing mm. the idea. Right. And the, the idea being that there is an idea about the scripture that guarantees the scripture's authority. And on the authority of that idea, the scriptures have the authority to give authority to everything else. I believe, right? right? Mm-hmm. That's that's what that, that's what it comes down to, right? That I've got to believe the Bible is authoritative for my other beliefs to work, but I have to have a theory that makes the Bible authoritative first. Right. And this is why, for most of the people in the circles that I moved in, they would say that they had a high view of Scripture, but they didn't. They had a high view of a theory about Scripture that was yes. more basic than Scripture. And yes. that theory is what they believed in, right? And they, they called it by various names, you know, inspiration, inerrancy, 
and, and qualifiers around those terms. But really, it's a theory about meaning and meaning making that they start with. Yes. Then they make the Bible fit that theory. And then everything else relies upon the reading of the Bible that comes from that theoretical model. Right. And, of course, the absurdity of that is that theory is not in the Bible. Right. <laughs> and and it's so it's, it's self-destructing right, yes. in that way. Yes. But there are plenty of people who don't know better. I mean, that's what they, that's what they've got to live with. And so they're stuck with it. I'm only talking about that small percentage of people who know that that's the theory and are gleeful about it. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And, and we'll die on that hill. And then kill you on that hill. They won't die on it. They'll kill you on that hill. And now a word from a sponsor. All right, let's get back into our conversation. So then many of us um, have come to believe in our belief about the Bible, um, which is um, at least two or three steps removed from um, what you are contending the Bible intends, the the work the Bible intends to do. The Bible doesn't even want us to believe in it. That's right. You know, not to mention believing in our belief about it. (laughs) So so then maybe as we pivot uh, towards what you're learning and how how you're coming to understand what does it mean to interpret scripture? What, what is the Bible for Chris? Why, yeah. why do we have it? What of, work what does we, it want to do? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the key question. I think Joel Green and John Bear have taught me different ways of using the word Bible that I want to point out here. One is Joel Green makes a distinction between the Bible and scripture that works like this. So he says the Bible is kind of an artifact for the historian an artifact for the scholar or the academic. The scripture belongs to the church, right? So mm-hmm. it's the same texts, but you don't read the Bible, Green says, the way you read scripture. Right? So you read the Bible mm-hmm. critically and analytically. Mm-hmm. You read scripture in faith. So Green makes that distinction, which I think it, Joel Green, and I think that's a that's a worthwhile one. John Bear makes a similar one, and that is the Bible is the product made of the scriptures for me to own. So the scriptures are the texts themselves. The Bible is a book made of those texts for me to possess as mine. (laughs) (laughs) And that, if if you kind of bring that language to bear on our discussion here, I think part of our problem is we do feel the pressure to have our reading of the Bible. And the Bible as that product that makes it mine. I now own it. Right. So my, we'll often say offhandedly, you know, my Bible says, well, that's right, right to the problem. <laughs> like, like mm. It quite frankly doesn't matter what my Bible says. Right. Like it's, that's not what scripture is. Mm. So I think we might start there with, and, and yeah. I often will speak of the scriptures rather than the Bible, just to make that point, just to kind of put that pressure on whomever I'm talking with, right? Like, let's make sure we're, we're talking about these texts, yes. not a book you own that you feel you have the right to interpret because it's your property. Yes. Mm. As you say that I have, I know you mentioned uh, Joel Green and uh, Barry, but I have John Bear's voice in my head because mm. he always is talking about the scriptures. Yes. Yeah. That's like, it. That's, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why John Bear is always talking about the scriptures and he often means what we call the Old Testament when he's talking yes, about it, that's right? what he, which is another level of the issue here, right? Yeah. That we, for most of us, we have really high claims about the Bible that are really about our theory about the Bible. Like, so mm-hmm. as you said, belief about the Bible rather than trust in the word of God. Yeah. Secondly, we really are working with a, with a very small canon within the canon. Mm. A few, t- and so the higher our view of scripture supposedly you know, the, the higher our doctrine of the Bible, as we understand high, often the lower our actual attention to the text. In fact, I've often kind of smart aleckly said, like, when I hear someone making high claims about the Bible, I can be sure they have low attention when they read it. <laughs> like, they're not paying attention when they <laughs> actually come to the text. Right? Um, yeah. 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 But I, I think, yeah, to your, to your point, we... We have to get past the sense that we have the right to make of it what we want. And and ironically, 
that it will just tell us what it wants us to know without any effort on our part. And this starts to get to what does the you know to actual answer to your question? What does the Bible want to do? I think I think it wants to move us. Mm. It wants to move us toward God and toward neighbor. And mm. it's designed to do that. It's designed to move us. Yeah. And to require it, it it's designed to be difficult for us. I, I I make a distinction between suffering, which I do not think God intended, it's a result of the fallenness of the world, and difficulty, which I think God does intend. So mm. there's a suffering that comes in reading scripture that has to do with fallenness. There's a pain that comes that's the result of my sin and my entanglement with the sin of others. But even apart from that, the Bible is difficult and is meant to be. The scriptures are supposed to be demanding. Yes. Yes. This is one of the key, I think, um, gifts that your book um, really reclaims from church fathers and mothers, which is um, there's there's a um, an appeal, uh, even, even doctrines in the Reformation, about how uh, the Bible is perspicuous. It's clear. Yep. Right and uh, the plain meaning, the plain reading of the text, um, but but what we see in the writings of church fathers like Origen and others is that um, they think that's rubbish. Yeah, could, <laughs> could you could you tell uh, could you talk about that a bit? What um, what's wrong with the scriptures? The, the plain reading of the text, the literal reading of the text. Yeah, so I want to make a distinction here between kind of the best versions of that notion, which you, you see in someone like John Webster, who argues for yes. the perspicuity of scripture in a right. kind of traditional reformed way. And I think, I mean, it's unpersuasive for me finally, but I can see why someone would want to argue that, you know what I mean? Like I, there's a kind of coherency to it versus the kind of pop versions of that, which reduce down to the Bible means whatever it means to me when I read it without thinking about what I'm reading. Like, like whatever, whatever meaning jumps off the page to me that doesn't require any attention from me, that's the plain reading. And that's, of course, absurd, but it's also false even to that tradition of perspicuity. So I, I think if you, if you want to hold to that, then hold to some good version of it, right? Find someone like John <laughs> Webster who's, yeah. who's actually thought that through and is giving some kind of sensible account, sensible account of it. What I would argue is that scripture is opaque, like more or less the opposite of the persecutory of scripture. The opacity of scripture is what matters. Hmm. And it's, it's meant to be, to mirror me. It's meant to stymie me. You know, it's, it's a wall that I run up against. I, I, I think I talk about this somewhere in, in that book. If not this one, it's, it's elsewhere that scripture functions a bit like the walls function for, for Balaam, you know, when he's flee, trying to get to this place where he can curse Israel and the angel of the Lord is trying to stop him along the way. And eventually the donkey talks, right? There are the walls that are narrowing along as he's moving along, narrowing him to this point of confrontation with the angel of the Lord, at which point the donkey speaks to him. I think that's what the reading of scripture is like. It's a, it's a narrowing of the walls around us until we get that confrontation that in, in which the donkey speaks to us and we realize, ah, like, like, what am I doing? And that I think is, is missing more or less entirely from popular biblicism. Yeah. 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 So, so maybe we can uh, just take these, un this understanding and this approach to a certain text. I actually, first Samuel 15 came up in the lectionary for us Um a few weeks ago, and I had to preach First Samuel 15. And and we were, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Dr. Wilda Gaffney. She put together something uh -huh, called yeah. the Women's Lectionary. Mm -hmm, yeah. So she uh, gave us the gift of putting First Samuel 15 next to um, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I feel like, you know, it was a, uh, somebody who doesn't uh, spend 40 hours per sermon. It was, it was quite a contest. And yeah. I found, I found that your writing on this really helped me, Chris. And let me just maybe name some dominant ways people handle this, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the basic story is Saul's commanded to kill all the Amalekites and all the animals, and he doesn't. He saves some, and he offers them to God as a sacrifice instead of killing them, and God is really cranked up, and Samuel's really cranked up, and Saul gets punished. Right? Yeah. Um, some people will say, well, if God commands it, it's good. 
And who are you to say killing babies is wrong? If, you know, if God commands it, it's good, which is kind of a voluntaristic, nominalistic way yeah. of seeing it. Some say, well, this is progressive revelation, right? And so people don't, uh, f- you know, uh, we don't have a full understanding of who God is until Jesus, but this leaves room for some anti-Semitism and some supersessionism that makes me really uncomfortable. Yep. Some, uh, some just like say, hey, this is an Old Testament God and he's different and there's a New Testament God and he's better, right? Yep. These are the ways we've handled this text throughout history. I think most of our listeners are, are dissatisfied with all three of those options. Um, how, how, have, how have you learned to read a text like this that scandalizes our conscience in a way? Mm-hmm. So much to say about it. I, right. I think one place to start is we do have to come at this. Now, hear me the right way here. When I say we have to, I, I don't mean to strong arm anyone into it. I mean, for it to be life-giving, mm. not that, you know, I'm dictating to anyone how they have to approach the text. I'm simply saying the text will not be life-giving unless you can trust that it is somehow working your good, that somehow the living Jesus has wisely mm. orchestrated this reading for you yeah. because it's what you mm. need. This is the medicine you need. This is the wisdom you need. And to be troubled by it, but troubled in a way that makes you lean into that trust in his wisdom. So I, I, you, you have to pay attention to what's troubling you, but then assume he knows it's going to trouble you. You're supposed to be troubled by it. Now what? Now what? And so instead of being scandal, like the, the last thing we want, I think, is to put the Bible and Jesus at odds with each other. Mm. And to, to put the words of scripture as somehow opposed to, and this is one of the reasons, even though I know what people are getting at when they make the distinction between Jesus as the word and the Bible as the word, I understand that point theologically, of course. But if you're not careful when you frame it, Jesus is the word, not the Bible, you end up making it so that the reading of scripture is something that is at odds with. Or derivative, yeah. Christ, right? And this is where, I, I mean, I'm just fully on board with origin, right? That knowing <laughs> Jesus is knowing him as he speaks to us in these texts, these right. stories, these proverbs, these psalms, and I have to read in that spirit. I have to come to these texts, knowing that some of this is going to be troubling for me, troubling in lots of ways. I mean, troubling in the ways that, you know, I wish, or I might wish, that the historical details aligned more neatly, right? That Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus and Luke's fit better historically. Like, say, I can mm-hmm. be troubled by that. Or, more to the point, Troubled by what's attributed to God and God's people, the things that are morally scandalous for us, the the horrors of Scripture. And there's every other possible kind of trouble that Scripture can occasion for you. But I I think there is a way, I mean, I know there is. I mean, I've 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 learned to live it, and I there's two millennia plus of people living it. Coming to these texts letting the trouble trouble them toward God and their neighbor, mm. not away from God and their neighbor. Mm. That And that's that's what it boils down to, I think. And it, it isn't just a Christian way of reading. I mean, this is something I think Christians learn from their Jewish fathers and mothers and neighbors. This is certainly how Origen learned it. Yeah, and and honestly, as, as we're talking, I, I've tried to, um, for a long time, I, I had sort of an elitist kind of, I think, um, unintentional kind of supersessionist way of reading the Old Testament. Um, and so I thought I can only learn, I can only read the Old Testament um, from Christians, right? Yes. Um, but I, I've actually been reading how Jewish people read their scriptures, novel yep. idea, right? Um, and they they actually have an appreciation for what you're talking about, Chris, not, not only in the level of what the text is meant to do, but what is theology about? Yeah, yeah. And I think I've inherited a tradition that theology is about getting the right answers mm-hmm. and making sure that we're uh, certain of them. Mm-hmm. This goes back to the foundational epistemology. Yes, yes, that's right. But but uh, Jewish interpreters m- have much more um, appreciation for the the wrestling and the and the debate mm-hmm. and the argument and the tension. You know, like. For instance, uh, the Deuteronomic code is like basically: if you do good, good will happen; if you do bad, bad will happen. Yeah. And then, and then some Israelite wrote uh, Job and yeah. said, "That's crap." Mm-hmm. In, in the Jewish interpretive tradition, doesn't eliminate one of those voices. No, right. Yeah, and and I, I, again, I think 
we're, we have the disadvantage, the three of us, of having been raised in the dark ages of American evangelicalism. <laughs> we are yeah. at the mercy of a, of a particular kind of narrowness that flattens our souls mm-hmm. and, and makes the reading of scripture and the reading of any text, the reading of history, the reading of our lives, almost mm-hmm. impossible mm-hmm. because it steals imagination from us. It steals heart from us. And it's disastrously hard. I mean, you, you, we started this conversation by talking about so many people kind of detoxing from the way they were raised to read scripture. And that's exactly what has to happen. I, I just want to encourage people that there is lovely, life-giving, joyous ways of reading these very difficult texts mm-hmm. that have stood across generations and across the world just because we happen to be raised in a place and a time where no one knew how to do that. Mm. We shouldn't lose touch with the fact that it is absolutely possible. And it's, it's not that hard to recover. It's just a matter of stepping yeah. away from the nonsense mm-hmm. long enough, getting away from the noise long enough to realize, oh, <laughs> there are many ways right, to, mm-hmm. to come at the many Christian and Jewish ways yeah. to come to these texts. And th- there's no, one of the things I, I try to do in the book is make a distinction between method and a, and the spirit of approach. That what I'm arguing for is not a method. It's not a technique. It's a, a basic orientation. Like it's just a, a, an a awareness that you hold that somehow these scriptures belong to the work of God in my life and the, and the work of God in the world. And I want to be present to that. And it's going to be mm-hmm. messy and it's going to be just as messy as the stories themselves are. Yeah. But that's as it should be. That's what life is. And and accept that and delight in that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's <clears throat> that's really key. Um, I think for a lot of our listeners. Um, and it was really helpful for me um as well. Because I, I think one of the messages that we receive from some of these old, you know, readings of scripture, um, the ways that a lot of us grew up, was that approaching it like that is not okay. It's not okay to be disturbed by the scriptures because how dare you, how dare you be disturbed by something God does in the scriptures because it's, you know, he's God and you know, he, he gets to do what he wants and it's good. Um, and so I think there was this like fear that crept in sure. to our interpretation where we're, we're not allowed to have our, you know, a reaction of disgust, <laughs> like, like, Oh my gosh, like, or horror, you know, mm-hmm. we're not allowed to have that because you know, we're not supposed to, and you know, there's, there's a fear of judgment. There's condemnation that we bring on ourselves and others. Um, and so I, th- I think this, um, I think this is a, a freeing word. I'm hoping that our listeners are hearing this as a freeing yeah. word to say, you know, almost like a curious experiment you could just run to be like, well, what if I just assumed that God was good and these scriptures are given to me to, like lead me into goodness and whatever reaction I have to this text is part of that. And it's okay. And I can just notice it. And maybe that's part of what I'm supposed to notice. Absolutely. And and this is, you know, Emmanuel Levinas has this wonderful line in in his commentary on the kind of Jewish rabbinical tradition. He, He gave a series of lectures on Midrashic texts and, in, in one of them, I can't remember which it is, he makes this comment that even though Jewish scriptures are often filled with images that are troubling for us right, and, and attribute to God things that seem horrific, he says, in effect, they're a school of kindness. They're a school of kindness. That what actually happens when you read them well is not that you become violent and oppressive and domineering just the opposite you're schooled in the kindness of god and i i think there's a way in which we've we've kind of lost touch with this because we're such bad readers i mean yes. we're not just bad readers of texts right i mean i i know it sounds like i'm being glib but i'm, I'm serious when i say we've been raised in a kind oh. of dark age yes we we are unbelievably poor readers of texts i mean you look at poetry i mean think about the ways in which we misread poems like the road less traveled or the ways in which we read films. Like, you know, we read, mm-hmm. we're, we're a culture that sees an anti-war, anti-war film and we turn it into propaganda for war. Right. Bruce Springsteen. 
Right. It's, uh, it's, you know, his yeah. born in the USA, born in the USA, you know, it is like it's a patriotic mad. song, but it's, uh, you know, it's not <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So I, I, I know for those folks, for folks who don't know me, this may sound like bluster, but I'm not kidding when I say in terms of reading texts, we are as impoverished as any people in the history of the world. Like we have mm-hmm. no idea what we're doing. We have no idea what we're doing. And so when we read scripture, of course we do it badly. Like we do it really, really badly. But we don't have to keep doing that. Like we can learn to yes. read otherwise, and it it will be work, but it's good work. I mean, it's work yeah. that can be yeah. that can even be joyous if we just give ourselves to it. So I I, I want to give people permission to to trust that process, but also to own for themselves we've been failed. Right? This is doesn't come down like no one who's hearing this conversation is to blame for this, but it mm-hmm. is our responsibility now to yeah. respond to it. Yeah. We'll be right back. The Gravity Podcast is sponsored by the Gravity Formation Course, our 12-month cohort-based training in practical spiritual formation, where you'll learn how to notice how God is already at work in your life so you can participate more fully in the life that God shares with us. It is a discipleship process that goes beyond just gaining more knowledge and trying out some new practices. In the Gravity Formation course, we go below the surface of our lives so that we can notice and name our deepest desires in God's presence and to discern how God is at work in those desires to lead us toward holistic flourishing, more transformation, more life, more joy, more love. We've trained hundreds of people from all over the world in this formation framework, and it's helped many people to have a sense of God at work in their lives and learn to be more at home in God's love. If you'd like to learn more, go to gravitycommons.com slash formation. Let's get back to the show. Maybe one more question to kind of tack on the end of this. Um, I think one of the other, so I, I, I sort of feel our listeners may be caught between two fears here. Like one is the fear we just talked about where it's like, if I, if I own up to my feeling disturbed about this scripture, like I'm, I'm under judgment, under the judgment of God. And, but, but I think there's another fear that may hold people back from really engaging in this new way of, of reading scripture, you know, trusting God is good and, and seeing what the text has, you know, um, even if it does disturb me. And maybe that is the fear that we're going to lose control of like, like, how do I know what this passage actually means then? Does this mean we're just making this up? Like, I think there's this fear of like, well, what does the Bible even mean then? Where are the controls? Yeah. Yeah. Where are the controls? How do I determine, like, does any interpretation work now? You know, and we can just, we can just kind of do whatever we want with the, with the Bible. How do you respond to that uh, fear? Yeah. So pastorally, I want to respond with a lot of patience because I, I, I know existentially the, the kind of you know the panic that sets in at that moment yeah there's a part of me that i <laughs> i want to respond other than pastorally with what makes you think you have any control of anything anyway <laughs> like, like, like how in what part of your life is there control of anything right yeah but i mean I don't mean to, again. Now, I'm not now you're just terrifying us, Chris. Good point. Trying to be that guy. No, I just, bedside manners, really. <laughs> you, you caught me at the like. We could record this conversation a couple of days ago. I, it might have gone very differently. Uh, <laughs> Bishop Green shows up to the hospital. Somebody got their wisdom teeth removed and said the surgery went well, but you are dying. All of us are dying. (laughs) All of us are dying. (laughs) Well, that's right. No, so more seriously, though, I I think the reason we don't have to be afraid is that my salvation, the salvation of my neighbor, does not come down to my grasp of what the Bible says or what Christian doctrine is, my faith, my obedience, that that what, what underlies the anxiety that underlies that question is the fear that I have to save myself by my grasp, my grasp of God or my grasp of doctrine or my grasp of the meaning of scripture. And it isn't what saves you, right? Like the the living God who has entrusted us to these texts and these texts to us, he's the one who holds us. Yeah. And so the reason we're not afraid is because the Lord is there. Yeah. 
and he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing with us. He knows yeah. what we need. And so I, I think it comes down to what should give me comfort is not that I've figured out what the controls of meaning are. What gives me comfort is that the Lord is here and I can trust him with my life and I can trust him with what I know and do not know. And I, now that, that said, I don't think every reading is equally viable, right. but we don't need to go down the line of how do we determine which is which. Like we don't need a set of rules for discerning. Those are good readings. Those are bad ones. Jesus can speak for himself. And I, I'm not going to say ahead of time what you might need to read in any particular moment. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Now, I think when we, Aquinas has already made this distinction that there are what, what we would call a difference between kind of dogmatic readings and devotional ones. The dogmatic mm-hmm. readings have to do with speaking on behalf of the whole church what it is the faith has told us about the God revealed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and disclosed in the life of Jesus. That's There's a hermeneutic for that that's different from what do I need to know right now in my life to be free yeah. toward the future God has for me. Yeah. So some of it is recovering that distinction. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, maybe, maybe as we close here, I can reset what I've heard, Chris, and, and you can add or clarify if, uh, if I haven't heard you correctly. Sure. So one of the, one of the things that your book does, and we even talked about vocation and holiness and how you start with vocation and move to holiness before we get to interpretation. That's, that's right. yeah. I feel like that's a whole other podcast. We could talk mm-hmm. about that, but, um, mm-hmm. but we have assumptions about what is the Bible for that come out of our like philosophical commitments and and um, and we have to excavate those, right? The Bible is for certitude. The Bible, you know, Pedens has that uh, quip that uh, defending the Bible has made us incapable of reading it. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, it's such a great line. It's Absolutely. such a great quip, uh, but it's so true, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so what you're saying is the Bible isn't for certitude or to win some kind of uh, war against modernity secularism. But but the Bible is to you, you mentioned moving us towards God and our neighbor. Another way to say that is it's uh, the Bible is meant to help us uh, love. Yeah, the, Be, yeah, that's right, <laughs> right, right. Um, and so it's, it's the Bible is true. I mean, one of the ways that I've put it, yeah. is the Bible is not like a repository repository for truths in mm-hmm. the abstract. It is a way in which we are made true, the reading of it, not, not the Bible in itself, but the grappling with it, like the, the readings of it are meant over time to make us true. Back to Levinas. It's a school of kindness. Yes. And we're being schooled in, in how to read the world. I mean, the reason I start with vocation and holiness is to argue, we have to know who we are and what we're called to do before we can approach these texts rightly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if we're approaching these texts as, they have knowledge I need in order to save myself by believing that knowledge. We're going to get it wrong every time, no matter how sophisticated our approach is. Like these texts do not exist as a repository of knowledge. I need to save myself. Yeah. They, they they are functioning as the word of this living Jesus, who's making us into a people, making us into a community of witness. Mm -hmm. And that has to be primary. Yeah. And then we can talk about, how our, our different readings serve that. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's helpful. And, and then I think, I think then that, that frees us to, uh, because we learn love, um, you know, like, like love is something that we have to be formed and trained in. Doesn't, we don't just, uh, we, we don't just have, love doesn't just passively come into our bodies and our relationships. Right. So they're, they're the struggle then of scripture is unto the telos of us becoming the kinds of people who can who want to live in love forever. That's right. And I, <laughs> I put this in the book there in, in the Gospel of Matthew, which is I think in one way of reading the Gospel of Matthew is a is a kind of lesson on how to read scripture. So there are two hmm. exchanges between Jesus and some of his interlocutors, in which he tells them, go and learn what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, which is a passage from the prophets, right? Go and learn what this means. Then they exchange a few chapters later, there's a run in again. And he said, because you did not know what this means, you have condemned the innocent. That you've misjudged the people around you. 
because you've misapprehended the text that was given to you. So the first thing we do, if he wants to train them in loving their neighbors, he says, go and learn what this means. Right? It's exactly to your point, Matt. Like, I want you to learn how to love, so go learn to read these stories well. Yeah. Read these laws, these parables, these proverbs well. Yeah. And once you've learned to read them, you will not condemn the innocent. That's that's the goal. So there's a sanct, and this is why the book is called Sanctifying Interpretation. Yes, yes. The work of reading is meant to change our hearts and to change yeah. the shape of our lives. You know, it 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 strikes me that a lot of these readings that we're talking about, you know, defending the Bible so that we're unable to read it, a lot of the readings that treat the Bible as I like your description, Chris, of you know, um, it's a collection of information that I need to save myself by believing it. A lot of, a lot of them have, have a kind of functional atheism about them where God is not present. Actually, God is not part of this reading of scripture. Like we don't, we don't actually trust that Jesus is present, that God, God is here. Right. And so I think your, you know, your, your word to us about the fear of losing control of scripture is apt to just say, well, the, you know, we, we don't have any control of scripture and actually our attempts to control the meaning of scripture oftentimes push God out of the picture where it's like, God's not even here. Well, God, yeah, so, God's not necessary because I've got this text and I know right. how to handle it. Yeah. Yeah, yes. yeah. God's not necessary. And so, um, so I think that that word, um, I don't know, there's something about that, that I, I think is helpful to just meditate on to say, you know, the, the comfort or the assurance that I have as I read scripture is that, well, God is here and God can actually speak through this text to me, even as I wrestle through it, you know, and as I, as I wrestle with it. And if I can just keep myself open to God speaking through this text and through other people, as I talk about this text with trusted friends and pastors and all that kind of stuff, God will speak and God will act and God will move. And we'll see that happen in our lives. Complete. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's exactly right. You can trust God, and you can trust the people who trust God. Yeah, and mm-hmm. that means these texts have a purpose in your life that is wildly other than what they've been used for. Yes, yes. And I, I that I I think I think we can and should love the scriptures, and precisely because we can and love them. But, we should love them in ways that free them from the ways they've been abused. Misused. Yes. Mm. Yes. Amen. Maybe one final observation. And Chris, if you make this uh, point in your book, I apologize. I either, uh, I either read it and forgot that you said it or uh, just can't remember, but it does seem like what you're contending that the scriptures are for, which is to uh, in some ways disorient us, help us to struggle, help us to question, help us to, um, basically like working out like spiritual it's a spiritual workout <laughs> right, right? Yeah. um that 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 that's that's exactly how the logos that that's how everyone re- reacted to him right like it, like jesus himself that's when right. he taught that's how people reacted to him that's right and this, so yeah, and that. so you're arguing that the scriptures want to do with us and for us what jesus did with and for the people he ministered to 100%. So there's a, I don't remember where it is and what chapter it's in, but one of the things I argue is that Jesus, we know that this is how the scriptures must work because this is what Jesus did when he was a monk. Yes. That, yeah. you know, we, we often tell people, uh, and it's insane that we do, we tell people that Jesus was a simple teacher. Mm-hmm. We leave the impression or we explicitly state that Jesus always talked in ways that were accessible. You know, we, with all that pablum about, you know, Jesus talked in metaphors that the everyday person could understand, which is just idiocy, right? Go and read any gospel, (laughs) any text from any gospel and look at what Jesus says and how people respond to it. Yeah. But it generates only a handful of responses, none of which are understanding. No one knows what Jesus is talking about. No. His parents don't know. His disciples don't know. His enemies don't know. The crowds don't know. Like nobody knows what he's talking about. And he leans into that. He doesn't try to clarify. You know, one of my favorite examples of this in John 6, Jesus has talked about eating his flesh and drinking his blood and scandalized everyone. They're all gone away except for the the few faithful. And 
Jesus turns to them and says, will you also go away? <laughs> right? mm-hmm. Not, hold on, everyone, let me explain myself. It's really right. not that offensive. Right. It just lets it stand, right? right? So the only right responses are the ones you are the ones you see there from Peter. Where would we go? Yeah. You have the words of eternal life. They're not words we understand clearly, but you have the words of eternal life. So we're going to stay. We're going to stay with you. And I think that's a it. It's shocking to me that we can't own that. Yes. Right? That that the Jesus of the Gospels was not understood, and yeah. yet he was loved. And yes. understanding him was not what made the disciples the disciples. Right. Are no. they, they were still confused even after the resurrection. I mean, read Acts oh. 1. They still yeah. don't know what's yeah. going on. Right. This is now so good, time? man. Yeah. This is yeah. so good. Ah. Ah. Gosh. Well, the book, again, Sanctifying Interpretation, Vocation, Holiness, and Scripture. Uh, Chris, uh, it's, it's such a needed book. Um, obviously, we live in a world that is addicted to our mental models, and we, we really need to recover being confused. Just one observation here. I know we're over time, but yeah, it's it's wild to me that we have such poor understanding. Like I I keep making this point that we're in a kind of dark ages intellectually, and yet we prize intellectual grasp of these truths in ways that Mm -hmm. are idolatrous. Like the the irony is, evangelicalism is a very heady spirituality. Yes, it is, but it's actually thoughtless. Right. And the, the, the irony of that is is painful, right? That we we put such a premium on intellectual grasp, even though our intellects are mostly dormant. Yeah. And our spirituality keeps them dormant, yes. even while it's telling us to value a certain kind of propositional knowledge or yeah. a kind of certainty. Yeah. Um, and again, I, I'm not here to romanticize uncertainty. I mean, I don't think it's sexy to doubt things. I don't it's not like Yeah. I'm here to just destabilize everything. Sure. But certainty is such a cheap substitute for actual truthfulness. Mm. Yes. And I, we, we're not a truthful people and we don't know, we don't know how to be. We don't even know where to begin. And that to me is the sign of just how dark our time is. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, listener, if you're interested in this, I encourage you to grab the book. Chris also has a number of videos on YouTube where he expounds upon various aspects of this. I yeah. encourage you to search that up. Chris, what are you working on now? Um, what 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 is dominating your time and interest? I just finished a biblical Christology. That'll be the follow-up to All Things Beautiful. It's a, a Christology drawn from the readings of Israel's stories. So pretty much it's a it's putting to the test all the things we talked about. <laughs> so that should be out early next year. I'm also just yesterday finished an essay on death, a brief theology of death. And hopefully we're, we're putting together a collection of essays around that. Also doing some work on Willie Jennings' Acts Commentary, some oh, man. putting together a panel review of that book. And, and then the next, the next project for me is a, is a book of sermons on the Psalms. So that'll, that'll be the next, probably the next after the, the book, after the biblical Christology. Yeah. So not much. Awesome. You're saying. Just, I mean, just, yeah. Not, not much. I mean, <laughs> well, uh, Chris, it's always a delight to have you and I appreciate your heart for the church and heart for the scriptures and your generosity of time spending uh, some of it with us today. Thanks yeah. a lot. Thank you friends. Well, Ben, that wasn't a waste of time. No, uh, I was, you know, pleasantly surprised that it wasn't a waste of time. Mm-hmm. No, I'm, it wasn't surprised at all. It's always uh, lovely to talk with Chris. Yeah, um, I, I think that uh, I was just commenting um, with you before we hit record again that uh, we could have we could do a whole six week series with him. Yeah, you know? just yeah. there's so much to mine out here. <clears throat> there is. There's. Um, I, I the thing I appreciate about Chris is that um, he has. I feel like he has such a different way than me of kind of looking at the scriptures and understanding what's happening that there's little phrases. I feel like that he puts out there that are paradigm shifting where I'm like, okay, hold on. Either let me think about that for a half hour Mm. or please talk about that more for a half hour. Yes. And so I I think there's a lot 
Um, there's a lot to unpack and I'm, I'm hopeful for you, dear listener, that that was maybe paradigm shifting for you in terms of how you approach the scriptures and, and think about what work they're supposed to do, you know, in our lives. Mm-hmm. So anyway. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I, uh, I also am excited about this series. I think so many of us, um, you know, we talked with uh, Janine about trauma and spiritual practices. And, and one of the spiritual practices that I think elicits trauma is reading scripture. Right? Yes. yes. Um, and so uh, being trauma sensitive and trauma informed about that. And what if we could change our relationship to these texts so that, so that they aren't a space or a place that triggers us, but they're a place that heals us. Yeah. Like that we desperately need a, th- uh, spiritual practices yeah. that don't either trigger our trauma or prey upon our trauma, yeah. but but uh, actually heal it, yes. tend to it, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that you're talking about that podcast with Janine McConaughey, mm-hmm. and one of the things she said that I thought that was so helpful was she just narrated her own, like some of her own triggering. And I think one of our, and sometimes this is what we need to do for our own sort of uh, soul care is to stay away from that, which triggers us because it's just too difficult, you know, maybe to get out of the triggering, but that can never be a long-term solution to the trauma is just to stay away from that, which triggers us. Right. And so she was narrating the ways that she notices that she's triggered and, and sort of remains present and all of that kind of thing. And it struck me that one of the, and and that's a way of sort of healing her relationship with this thing that triggers her, Mm -hmm. which, you know, by definition is not the thing that traumatized her. It's the thing that her body remind, you know, her body's reminded of the trauma because of the trigger. And I think, um, Chris's words, uh, there was, there was, you know, what he talked about in terms of our approach to scripture and kind of leaning into, you know, what if God is good and what if my response to this is, is fine and is part of it and is part of how God is perhaps speaking to me in the midst of this. I think those can be healing thoughts for those of us who are triggered by reading scripture, you know, um, to be able to approach it and say, okay, this is difficult for me, but what if, what if my disgust at reading this passage about God commanding genocide, what if that's part of how I'm, what if that's part of this? And I, what if I can be present here to a good God and figure out, you know, interpret this, you know, with God. So I don't, I don't know. I think, I feel like those can be healing thoughts for, for people who are, do have some difficulty approaching the scriptures. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I also found it, um, his comments, I'd never really thought about our age as like a dark age. Um, I mean, basically he said like, we're functionally illiterate. (laughs) And, and I was like, you know what, that, 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 it just rang true to me. And I, there was something, you know, I thought of, I don't know if you've read Neil Postman, um, but he's like a, uh, I don't know what he was, a professor, I guess, but um, what was what was his main book? You remember Neil Postman? Yeah, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Amusing Ourselves to Death, yeah. And he was talking about the, he was talking about this trend, you know, where we don't know how to read texts anymore because we would just watch TV. You know, we just see images and they're, they're much less uh, demanding. Um, Chris talked about the importance of difficulty and they're much less demanding. Like he, he was saying how you never you never compliment a child on how good they are at watching TV. (laughs) You you know, like your child is so good at watching TV. It's not demanding to sort of look at these images, but it is demanding to read these texts. And there was something I found that was actually freeing about noticing that to know, like just to sort of embrace, Oh yeah, we're in a dark age and we don't know. We don't know the first thing about reading texts. Of course Mm -hmm. we don't (laughs) like we haven't, like we haven't, we haven't had to do it. You know Um, we've got copious amounts of, TV and all kinds of great entertainment at our fingertips. Um, of course we don't know how to read texts. Mm-hmm. And there was something freeing about that for me just to realize, yeah, of course we're bad at this, <laughs> but we don't have to be like, we can learn and we can grow. Um, so anyway, I thought that yeah. was no wonder this is hard. No wonder. Yeah. There's a, there's a freedom in that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Anyway. Uh, ben, did I tell you that I've started to invest in stocks? No, this is new. Yeah. Uh, the three that I'm uh, focused on are uh, beef, chicken, mm-hmm. and vegetable. And I hope one day to become a billionaire. Nice. <laughs> nice. 
I got to write down, I got to write down some dad jokes. Cause I, there was one the other day that I was like, Oh wait, it's time for a dad joke. And, uh, <laughs> but I couldn't think of it. Well, it was just like, Oh, I'll remember that one. But I never do. Unless but I you didn't. Down, so. You didn't. All right, everybody. I never do. Well, All right. Well, uh, hey, this, this series is going to be a lot of fun. Look forward to more conversations with people who will teach us how to read and interpret the scriptures, figure out what the Bible is, figure out our relationship with it. Yeah. All right. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. Subscribe. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you're finding it helpful, we'd love it if you tell your friends about it. Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles that we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. Our show is produced by Ben Sturkey and Matt Tebby. Aaron Sturkey edits and mixes the podcast. You can check out his work at aaronsturkey.com. We'd love to hear from you. To record a question or comment for us, go to gravityleadership.com slash message and click the Start Recording button. You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.